The reading is, is Acts chapter 19, starting at verse 23. It can be found on page 1725, if you have a big print Bible like me, or in the Pew Bibles, page 772. Acts chapter 19, starting at verse 23. About that time there arose a great disturbance about the way. A silversmith named Demetrius, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought in a lot of business for the craftsmen there. He called them together, along with the workers in related trades, and said, You know, my friends, that we receive a good income from this business. And you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. He says that gods made by human hands are no gods at all. There is danger not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited. And the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. When they heard this, they were furious and began shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! Soon the whole city was in an uproar. The people seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's travelling companions from Macedonia, and all of them rushed into the theatre together. Paul wanted to appear before the crowd, but the disciples would not let him. Even some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul, sent him a message begging him not to venture into the theatre. The assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. Most of the people did not even know why they were there. The Jews in the crowd pushed Alexander to the front and they shouted instructions to him. He motioned for silence in order to make a defence before the people. But when they realised he was a Jew, they all shouted in unison for about two hours, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. The city clerk quieted the crowd and said, Fellow Ephesians, doesn't all the world know that the city of Ephesus is the guardian of the temple of the great Artemis? and of her image, which fell from heaven. Therefore, since these facts are undeniable, you ought to calm down and not do anything rash. You have brought these men here, though they have neither robbed temples nor blasphemed our goddess. If then Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a grievance against anybody, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. They can press charges. If there is anything further you want to bring up, it must be settled in a legal assembly. As it is, we're in danger of being charged with rioting because of what happened today. In that case, we would not be able to account for this commotion, since there is no reason for it. After he had said this, they dismissed the assembly. This is the word of the Lord. Richard's going to come and bring to us our second reading. Thanks, Richard. And then we're going to hear from Steve. The second reading is from Luke chapter 3, verses 7 to 18. In the large print Bibles on page 1596, in the small print 715. John said to the crowds coming out to baptise him, 
You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abram as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. What should we do then? the crowd asked. John answered, The man with two tunics should share with him who has none, and the one who has food should do the same. Tax collectors also came to be baptised. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you are required to, he told them. Then some soldiers asked him, and what should we do? He replied, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. The people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Christ. John answered them all, I baptise you with water, but one more powerful than I will come, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptise you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floors and to gather the wheat into his barn. But he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And with many other words, John exhorted the people and preached the good news to them. This is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Alrighty, as you came in, you were probably given, I hope, or at least offered, <coughs> an outline of the talk. You might like to grab that. And if you could turn, <coughs> pardon me, back to Acts chapter 19, that would be really great. Let me pray for us and then we'll look at the Bible together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that in it you reveal yourself to us. Uh, you speak to us. Father, I pray that you might speak to us again this morning. Help me to speak truly uh, and clearly from your word. Uh, and Father, as we go from here, we pray that you would equip us uh, ready to, to face a world uh, that is opposed to you uh, and with, with some knowledge about how we, might, uh, how we might do that. So we commit this time to you now in Jesus' name. Amen. I wonder if you're the kind of person who... How do you feel about uh, conflict? I have to admit that when it comes to conflict, I'm a bit of a conflict avoider. Uh, people who know me well will know that's that's true of me. You know, every now and then you can't avoid conflicts. You get you get kind of drawn into one. But uh, much if I had my choice, I think um, I would much rather keep the peace. I'd much rather uh, not wake, make waves, keep people comfortable. Um, I don't think I'm alone in that. I think there are a lot of people who avoid conflict. And we do it for all sorts of reasons. Some people do it for fear of rejection. Um, if they stand up for yourself, then people might not want to be with you. Um, some people uh, kind of doubt that they actually have a valid opinion to make in the first place. They have kind of 
self self worth kind of uh, issues. Uh, some people are unsure um, of what of what you really want. They don't really know, and so they don't want to get into conflict about it. Uh, some people have had neg- negative experiences in the past where they've been in conf- conflict with people. And so they don't want to uh, get experience that again. Some people are afraid of hurting other people. They don't want to do anything that might hurt someone. Other people have kind of a lack of confidence um, about, uh, or lack of conviction about what you really believe. There's all sorts of reasons why people find it hard to deal with conflict. Um, I, think, I, think, I actually think that conflict avoidance is one of the reasons why Christians find it so hard to talk about their faith. Because we have all of these kind of feelings. We wonder if we share our faith, will we be rejected? Um, is, it, is what we believe real? Are we, do we believe it enough? Do we, uh, you know, I've tried it in the past and I've got a negative reaction. So there are all these kind of reasons that we bring up, we have in our, go on in our mind, why we don't want to share the fa- our faith with others. Which is difficult for us at the moment because, of course, we're in the middle of a series talking about preparing for mission. Preparing to share our faith with others, share the good news about Jesus with other people. And so with all these things going in the background, uh, it makes it harder for us, doesn't it? Um, And so the question is, what do we do in a world where we're likely to come across people who don't believe what we believe? So many people that don't believe what we believe. How do we uh, go into those kind of situations of possible conflict uh, and, and, and do something positive? Well, we're going to think a little bit about that today, but we're actually going to find ourselves in Acts chapter 19, we find ourselves in the middle of a huge conflict. In fact, well, actually, Paul does, finds himself in the middle of a huge conflict. Um, And Paul has been living in Ephesus for a while, but now we find in verse 29, this is Acts 19, verse 29, that the whole city is in an uproar. Paul's companions have been dragged into the theatre. The theatre looks something like this. Uh, this is the actual theatre from Ephesus as it stands today. Uh, it's quite a big stadium and they used to do all sorts of things. They used to have all kind of, uh, literally have, have plays and that kind of thing in there, uh, musical kind of items, that kind of deal. Uh, and also town meetings, uh, they have kind of uh, religious um, ceremonies there. Um, 25,000 people could, could be seated there. And so Paul's friends are dragged into the theatre and there's, there's quite a commotion. Paul wants to go and stand before them, we're told in verse 30, uh, but others beg him not to because the crowd is so big and so angry. Um, there's also a little bit of confusion in there. I, I'd love to know how they found knew this, um, but how there's people there, just, they're just there along for the ride. There's this huge crowd. Some people are yelling one thing, some people are yelling another, and other people are going, oh, what am I doing here? I don't know why. Anyway, there's a big crowd. I guess everybody's here. I might as well be here. Um, So there's confusion, there's anger, um, and it's almost uncontrollable. When the Jews um, send somebody out to go and speak to the crowd, perhaps um, to go and say, look, these guys, Paul and his friends, they're nothing to do with us, okay? Uh, Just leave the synagogue alone, leave the Jews alone. We're nothing to do with these guys. They're speaking something different. When they get up, uh, they're just howled down. And the, the, the crowd just yells over and over again, Great is Ar- Artemis of the Ephesians. It's a very volatile situation. Um, so why has it got, come to this? Why has it got to this situation? Well, it's got to this situation because Paul has been, well, he's been stirring up a bit of trouble. He's been saying, we're told, that God, the gods made by human hands are not gods at all. 
the statues that people are putting up in their houses that they're bowing down to worship are nothings. They're just empty. They're just pieces of wood. And which is a bit of a problem, of course, for the people who are in the God-making business. And so you can imagine if you're somebody who, whose job is to make idols for people to sell. Now, it's, it's great to be in the, in the, Roman, uh, the Roman Empire uh, because the Romans have got all sorts of gods. And so you can be making all sorts of idols that people can, can, can buy and stick up on their shelves. Uh, and also all the kind of merch that goes alongside it. Uh, you, can, you can be making all those things. But when somebody stands up and says, these gods aren't real gods, then of course it's going to uh, impact your business, isn't it? And that seems to be one of the problems. That not only is Paul saying something that they don't like, but it's having a bad effect on them. And so they, uh, a guy by the name of Demetrius, we're told, um, gathers some of his cronies um, from the, uh, the God-making union, I guess, um, and they, they, uh, they start gathering people around them. They figure, like, if they say, look, it's, it's hurting our bottom line, that's not going to be very helpful. And so they say, well, what they're really doing, what, what Paul is really doing is attacking our God. Now, in Ephesus, there was a huge, uh, a huge temple to the goddess Artemis. It would have looked something like this. Uh, there, there are ruins still today. The front little part of it, uh, it still stands today. Um, and it's kind of world around. It's one of the, the, the wonders of the, world, of the ancient world, this great temple to Artemis. Well known. People across the world would come to it. And so they started gathering a crowd and whipping them up into a bit of a frenzy. It must have been a bit like this. If you've been to a situation, uh, you've been to a football game and you've got the crowds there and they're, started, they're starting to yell. And you can almost imagine how, how they're yelling. You've got two sides and one will be going, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the... And, or, we love you, Artemis. We do. We, they're starting to sing these, these chants over and over again. People are singing to their God. They're, they're so whipped up. And just like in a, in a crowd, they, they're starting to get angry. When they see somebody from the opposing side there, they start to get angry. It's a frenzy. So why did Paul do this? Why did Paul do... Surely Paul knew that this kind of talk would end here. I mean, in the centre of this worship of this god Artemis, to stand up and say things like, well, these gods are nothings anyway, and what you're worshipping is just a block of wood. Surely he knew that that was going to cause trouble that that would be offensive. I mean, that's a terrible thing to say to, to people like that. And what seems weird is that last week, you may remember, in Acts chapter 17, we saw that, that Paul was in Athens. And when he stood up in Athens, he actually took hold of some of the, the, uh, the elements of their culture and started to, to weave it in and almost kind of accept that, that part of their culture. You may remember he talked about the, the, um, the idol to the foreign god. You remember that? The, the place that they come to worship the foreign god. Uh, the, 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 the unknown god, sorry. And uh, he even used, he quoted some of their poets to them. Paul seemed to take on board the culture that he was in. And now he seems to be going against it. What's happened? Why, why has he changed his tactics? Because it's, it's an important question for us, don't you think? Because we live in a world where the prevailing culture is not Christian. Even though you know, we, some people like to say it's a Christian country, it clearly isn't. We're not a Christian country. Uh, and so when we stand up and proclaim the gospel, we're going to be saying things that are offensive. 
and you may have seen may have seen people on TV or seen people on the on the interwebs uh, writing things and, and people reacting really badly. Uh, and that's what we, we expect from our world. How, what should we do in a culture like that? Should we change what we say to fit in so that we don't offend people as if that's the, the ultimate goal, to not offend people? Or should we do something different? Well, as you, as you look at this story, there are a couple of things just to, just to note uh, before we think about how we might apply this to ourselves. The first thing to notice is that actually nothing has really changed in Paul's method. That although this, this caused a riot here on this particular occasion, if you look back in verse 10, you'll notice that Paul has actually been there for two years. It's not as if Paul has suddenly walked up and, and just started causing trouble. He's lived amongst these people for two years, um, sharing the good news about Jesus. Um, but wherever he has gone, Paul has always challenged the falsehoods and the errors. As you read through the book of Acts, wherever Paul goes, where he's standing up in front of um, a synagogue or where he's uh, meeting people by a river or whatever he's doing, Paul always challenges the beliefs of those who are there. Um, he will not compromise his gospel no matter where he is. Even in Athens, he challenges them that they need to worship the unknown God. The one that he's come to tell them is, about, is the true and living God. He actually comes to challenge them. Now, he could have here said, look, it's okay to keep your idols. Because in the end, if they're just blocks of wood, they're just blocks of wood. So what does it matter? What does it matter if people have idols in their home? Just decorations. But he doesn't do that. He's prepared to take a stand. He's prepared to say things that might be offensive um, by sharing the gospel. He makes sure that he shares, he tells them the truth about the gospel. There is one true God. All other things are lies. And that's what gets him into trouble is the people start to listen and they start to, uh, to change their way of life, then it makes a difference. So if you read through earlier in, in uh, Acts 19, we hear that, um, this is in, in uh, verse 19, that the people are so impacted by, what, by Paul's message that um, they actually take all their books that they, they used for their, their past sorcery, we're told, they bring them to the town square and they set them on fire. Uh, because they realise that these books are blasphemous. They're, they're, they're actually t- worshipping the devil rather than God. And they're so impacted by the gospel that they want to get rid of that out of their lives. We're told that the, the total value of what they destroy is something like, uh, I worked it out, something like 50,000 days wages, which is over $10 million worth of books that they destroy. It's an amazing uh, display of uh, how the gospel has changed their lives. But Paul's message has never changed. He's always proclaimed the gospel, and no matter what the results are. And in fact, it's always been the case. When you look at Jesus, that's what Jesus did, isn't it? When he stood up in front of the Pharisees, Jesus proclaimed the truth, and he wasn't afraid to challenge them. The passage we had read from John the Baptist was exactly the same. John challenged them in no uncertain terms. When you look into the Old Testament, it's there. Daniel was prepared to stand up, and to challenge what was happening in the prevailing culture. Um, Elijah was the same. Even though there were there was hundreds of, gods, of, of prophets worshipping the Baals, and everybody was going after the Baals, Elijah was prepared to stand up and be different and to make a challenge. 
Uh, Moses, of course, did the same thing in front of Pharaoh. He wasn't afraid to offend Pharaoh. He stood up in front and challenged him, no matter what the consequences. It's the same thing that Paul urges Timothy when he says to him, um, keep on preaching the gospel because there, there will be people coming to you and they'll be saying, tell us what our itching ears want to hear. And Paul says, no, you must continue to proclaim the truth. Hold on to the truth. Teach the truth, no matter what people say. You see, those who stand up for God have always and will always cut across their culture. There is no Christian culture. There's no place across the world where, where we will live in a Christian culture. The world's culture is always cutting across God's. And so when we come to proclaim the gospel, we will be challenging people. And there is a chance that we might offend people. But that's the way it's always been. Jesus' first sermon was, repent and believe the good news. It wasn't just repent, it wasn't just believe me and you can do all the other things if you like. No, repent, change, turn, turn away from. Jesus challenged the prevailing culture. The other thing to note from this, from this passage is actually that, that Paul doesn't come out with all guns blazing. Um, he, he wants to speak in front of the crowd, but actually, you know, one of the interesting things about chapter 19 is that Paul doesn't speak. He doesn't say anything. Um, Paul's life has done a lot of the talking. In verse 37, when the town clerk stands up, he notices that actually Paul and his friends have actually not done anything um, illegal. They haven't done anything to, to try and hurt anyone else. They haven't uh, robbed temples or blasphemed our goddess, he says. Um, and so he knows Paul's life. Uh, Paul's got some friends in the council. They're the ones who try and stop him from going forward. Paul has actually lived amongst them for two years, as I said earlier. Um, God has done great things. They've seen God at work through him. And so Paul hasn't just come in just offending people left, right and centre, not caring what, uh, what he has to say. Um, he's been very careful about the way he shared the gospel in that place. Um, and that, that's what's had an impact on people, not just his words, but his life. And so Paul doesn't just deliberately go into offend. And so we must, you mustn't hear me saying that when we proclaim the gospel, we should go out deliberately to offend people, because that's not what Paul did. He was prepared to get in amongst them, to live amongst them, to get to know them, as he did the people in, in Athens. He was prepared to live amongst them, to get to know their beliefs and, and, uh, and where they were going in their lives. Um, so he could then speak the gospel into their lives. So the thing I want to think about just for a moment, just to finish off, is how do we do that in our world? Because there aren't many um, idols in our world. There aren't many kind of uh, people who make gods. I mean, there are a few people. Uh, people You can buy your own Buddha to stick in your back garden. You can buy the dream catchers to hang from your windows. You can, um, you can buy the crystals and all those kinds of things if you go up to Katoom or whatever. Um, these are the kind of things that, you know, the kind of idols, the kind of gods of this world, if you like, um, that a bit like in the first century. Uh, but the people in our world are much, well, they don't, they don't worship God in the same way. Well, they don't worship gods at all, many of them. So how do we impact a world like this? Well, uh, in our, in our, I'll tell you how not to do it. The first, first thing how not to do it is like this. Um, when I was in year eight, um, 
uh, as everybody did, we had to do all sorts of different classes. I might have told you this story. Um, I used to do art, and, and me and art don't really mix. Being a mathematician, I mean, what do you do? Art, drawing, whatever. Um, during art, myself and my other um, mathematically minded people weren't so keen on the actual art part of it. And so we used to sit at the back and we used to argue with one another. And we used to talk, I had one particular friend uh, who I used to argue with during our art classes. And uh, each argument would always end the same way. If we were growing up in the 21st century, it would have been kind of talk to the hand. But it, it, it was kind of like, we just say, you've lost the argument. And no matter what anyone said, you say, you lost the argument. The whole aim of the, of the discussion was actually to win. And I have to say, to my shame, that, um, that I was much more interested in winning a discussion, proving myself to be right, uh, than actually to try and help him to get to know God. Um, if I'm honest, that's where I was at that point in my life. So don't do that. Behaving like that will not draw anyone closer to faith in Jesus. All it will do will push them away. If you don't believe it, just go online sometime. Just go, um, tune into somebody's blog where they're talking about faith or the impact of faith in our world uh, and just read the comments. And you can read through and you can see the vitriol, the terrible ways that people talk about and to each other in that kind of anonymous environment. And all that happens there, no, no one is ever persuaded by those discussions. All that happens is that people dig their trenches deeper. In the First World War, when people were during trench warfare, people were lobbing over grenades and, and, and firing uh, from one to the other, rather than kind of saying, oh, well, you, you're throwing grenades at us or shooting at us, obviously we should be on your side, and so people would change over. No, as the grenades came over, as the, the bullets flew, flew, they just dug, dug their trenches deeper, so they were safer. And that's what people do in, when we get into big arguments with them. Is we get into, into arguments trying to win, trying to defeat people, all that will happen is that people will become further and further entrenched into their, their own position. People won't be persuaded by argument. Um, but they can be persuaded. And so one of the things that we've been doing as a staff is we've, uh, in our staff meetings, we read through, we're reading through the, the Psalms. And one of the things we've just started doing is reading this book, um, Evangelism in a Skeptical World by Sam Chan. Uh, and it's actually a really fascinating book. I've got a copy of it here. Um, it's a really interesting book. If you haven't read it, uh, I encourage you to read it. Um, it's a really challenging and helpful book. Uh, and he gives some really good advice about how to reach into our world, uh, into a skeptical world with the gospel. And so what I want to do is I want to try and take you just through just some of the ideas from that book. Um, there's six quick ideas. Uh, you'll see the number six on the back of the, your, your outlines for those who are following along. And just see how those things will impact. One of the big questions that people have about the faith, or one of the things that people often say, and that's this. Um, you might come across someone who believes science disproves God. You, have anyone ever had anyone say something like that to them? Um, or, or had that kind of attitude, science disproves God. How do you, come, how do you re respond to someone like that? Well, if you're an argumentative person, uh, you might say, well, that's a ridiculous argument because science and faith are talking about different things and you know, your, your argument is circular. You say it's only logic and so you, 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 you're so focused on these things that you can't even think outside. You're so blinkered and you start to label the other person. Uh, and put them down, saying, well, if only you were intelligent like me, you'd see that there's more to life than science. So don't do that. 
Don't approach people trying to tear them down. Uh, and what Sam encourages us to do is these, these six things. The first thing he encourages us to do is to try and understand the idea or try and understand the person in their own terms. In other words, what is it, what is it they're really saying when they're saying that? And so uh, one of the things they're saying when people are saying that science uh, has disproved God is I really believe that rational thought, rational or logical thought, trumps all others. That this is the that that that's the the most important thing for us to do is to think logically, to think rationally. And then he says, "Say, well, you understand it on its own terms, but then try and get behind it. Say, what actually um, are they actually trying to say by saying that?" And in the end, when you, I think when you look at that question, one of the things that people are trying to say is that you can only really trust things that you can prove. All these other things. Uh, well, they're too subjective to actually be helpful. Um, that faith, actually, when people talk about faith, is actually the opposite of fact. And uh, everything else is just a matter of opinion. If you, if you stick to the truth, to the, the things that you can take to a science laboratory and prove, then you can be confident there. But when you start going to fields beyond that, things like psychology and theology, those kinds of things, philosophy, they're not provable. They're just people's ideas. And so there's no way you can say one idea is better than another. So he says, try to understand what's going on. Why, what, is it, what is that idea really trying to say? But then go, he encourages us to go beyond that and to say, well, rather than just trying to understand it, he says, also try to empathise with it. Try to understand why is it that people feel that way? Why is it such an attractive way to feel? What kind of need does it fulfill, if you like, in them? And so, for instance, for somebody who believes that science disproves God, well, there's, there's lots of reasons to believe that. It, it helps to, to see, see that life is more controllable that way. If you can understand things and everything that happens, you can understand by uh, rational laws, then you can start to understand life. And life starts to be understandable. It's in my little box here because I, I, can, I can define it, I can prove it, and, and so I don't, I don't need to, it doesn't confuse me because I've got the rules here. I can understand that. Um, also, I don't want to be fooled. I've heard stories about people who, who believe things just because they're told them and they, they believe all sorts of ridiculous things. And I don't want to be thought to be a fool. And I can understand that. I don't want to be, be people to look at me and think I'm an idiot. I want people to think that I'm intelligent and wise and thoughtful and all that, those kinds of things. Uh, and so it, it makes sense to say if, if you can just prove it, it sh you can show that you're not a fool. Whereas you can, and, and also people who have, have faith have done all sorts of terrible things. Think about people who use faith to justify, you know, the Crusades and... Um, and, and, all, and, the, and abuse and all those kinds of things, they hide behind their faith. If only people would think la um, logically and rationally, then we, we could put, put away all of those things. You know, that, that whole John Lennon, imagine there's no religion. Imagine how the world would be, everybody living in peace. If we're just living by the rules of our world, everything would be good. You know, I can understand that, can't you? I can understand why people would feel that way. And so it's important for us, as Sam says, and I think he's right, for us to actually, not just to, to, um, to do this as a way of uh, kind of a, 
a, a trick or something, but to actually understand why do people feel what they th- feel? Why do people think what they think? Asking questions is a really important thing in, in evangelism. Asking questions of the person you're talking to, why do you think that? What is it, what, what's behind that? Why, why do you under, understand life that way? How did you come to that conclusion? To try and understand where people, people are coming from rather than just try and batter them down. So once we've tried to understand it and tried to understand the feeling of it, he then says you can start to deconstruct it, which basically means to try and find out where is that message, where is that idea deficient, where is it lacking, where is it missing the mark. Um, And so, for instance, um, it's true that science cannot explain everything. How, how How does science explain love or compassion or mercy? Kindness. Um, love can't under, uh, science can't understand, understand those things. It can't explain those things. Also, science can't, can't explain meaning or purpose. If life is just a, uh, a random series of events, then what is the meaning to life? What is the purpose of life? Why am I here? At one level, I'm just an animal. Going, I'm just part of the evolutionary process. Is that all that my life is about? I have a sense that it's, it's more than that. And I think most people do when they stop to think about it. Life is more than just chemistry or biology. Science gets you to a point, but it can't take you any further. It can't give you meaning. It can't give you hope. People have hope for a better world. Why? Why would we have any thought that there's the hope, just from a logical point of view? If people keep mucking it up, then surely logic suggests that our world's going to just unravel. Why, was there, why would there be any hope? If it's just chance, it's just as likely to be destroyed as to survive. Science, the, the, whole, the whole field of science, and I love science, um, has its limitations. And so having deconstructed it, to, to find out where the, the, where the limitations of, of that, that, that idea is, he then says, well, then go try and work out, well, how is it that the gospel gives the happy ending, if you like? How is it that the gospel answers that storyline or that need or that desire that, that is behind their idea? If their desire is for, uh, for, for rational thought and for trust and objective truth, well, perhaps you might say something that the gospel does have objective truth. It's based on historical facts. It's based on historical evidence. It, uh, it's not just as if faith is the, op- the opposition of facts. In fact, faith is based on facts uh, in the same way that any relationship is. But of course, uh, not only does uh, the gospel have... Um, logical coherence to it, it also brings meaning in a way that science never can. It can actually show us why we are here. It can, it can give us true hope and direction. And so now we've, we've tried to understand where people are coming from. We've tried to delve into it to understand what's behind their idea and try to empathise with it. So to stand in their shoes, if you like, and to see why it is that they hold on to these things then we've tried to say, well, what are, where, where are the failings there? Where are the, where are the inadequacies in that, those ideas? And we say, well, how does the gospel meet those inadequacies? 
Has it meet the needs that they're, that they're searching for? And it's when we've done those things, we're actually able to start speaking the gospel into that situation. And so we're able to say something like, you know, the creator who made all things, who knows everything about you, who, who brought all the scientific beauty that there is. The, the one who, who designed all these things actually cares about you and loves you and me. And he actually gives you purpose and gives us meaning uh, and direction in our lives. So rather than trying to destroy someone's argument, we're trying to understand where they're coming from so that we can then help them and with them to help them to see that actually the gospel is the thing that they're yearning for. The gospel is actually the thing that fulfills their, their, their desires and their hopes and their wishes. You see, it's important for us to realise that although that when we think about sharing the good news about Jesus with our friends, um, we actually need to get to know where they're coming from. Uh, Sam says, uh, to tell a gospel to someone, we actually need to know both the gospel and the person we're talking to. And so part of the evangelistic process is that asking questions, getting to know where people are and what, what they believe and why. Not so that we can just defeat them. We need to be genuine about this in the same way that Paul was living in, in Ephesus. He lived alongside these people, got to know them, and they got to know him. He cared for them as people. But despite that, just because we do that doesn't mean that we have to agree with everything they say. There's a myth in our culture, the myth of tolerance, that we need to be tolerant of everybody's views. In other words, we need to just let people have their opinions and, and never say anything that might cross them. That seems to be the, the modern idea of tolerance. You just leave people what thinking what they think and you don't ever challenge them. Now, of course, true tolerance says, I accept that you have this way of thinking. I love you and I care for you as a real person, but I also want to share this with you, not in a way that brings you down as a person or, or tries to show that I'm better than you, but actually says, well, because I love you, I want to share these things with you. The gospel, by definition, is good news. And so though, although people may not want to hear it, it is actually the best thing for them to hear the good news of Jesus. The gospel calls people to repent, to turn from their way of life. And so we can't, people can't do that if they don't see that their way of life is wrong, if they don't see that there's any problem there. Sometimes our message will be uncomfortable. So let me encourage you to go out, here from, to, to, out from here today determined to do two things. I hope you are. One is to get to know your friends and family well to get to know what it is that they believe and why. Rather than just saying, I have a message to give you, say, well, let me hear from you. You tell me what you think, and then I'll tell you what I believe. Um, because I also, we also need to be ready to speak the, tr the life-giving truth of the gospel into their lives, that they might come to a point of repentance and faith. Let me pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for the great gospel that we have. It's the gospel of life. It's the good news that brings hope and salvation to all who believe it. Father, we live in a world uh, where people don't believe it. Their lives are heading in a diametrically opposite direction to you. And so, Father, we pray that you give us great wisdom and sensitivity as we go out into that world. Help us to love people enough to get to know them well. 
Help us to love people enough to be prepared to share the gospel with them, to tell them what Jesus has done for them, that they too might receive the gift of eternal life. For we ask it in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.